So food writers and chefs and people that are really obsessed with food in general, they like to talk about the high-end stuff that they love and then the low-end stuff like the chain restaurants or the super fine dining things, the super hot places. But what I always find most telling and revealing and interesting is the stuff that nobody really wants to talk about or like doesn't talk about very often, which is like their norm core office lunches. On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are talking with Gabe Stolman, proprietor of New York's Little Wisco Restaurant Group. He's a super inspiring dude. You know, he has some really great restaurants that once you go to them, you're like, this is this is going to be like my casual neighborhood place. He's really smart. He's really funny. And I can't wait to uh, talk with him about his, his business there. It's going to be awesome. Stick around. But first, Greg, let's finish talking about what we started talking about. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. I think it's tremendously revealing and not like I'm judging people when I hear. I just find it really interesting. Like, what do you eat when no one is watching? What do you eat when no one's watching? What do you eat when you only have 10 minutes and you can only go three blocks from your office and there's you only have the same boring options? How do you deal with that situation? This is the phenomenon of the sad desk salad. Right, which which or what what Bon Appetit magazine has tried to reframe as lunch al desco. Oh yes, um, which is an I I guess a nice spin to put on a, a fairly tragic moment of one's life. Well, as I see it, it doesn't have to necessarily be tragic if you actually make a decision about what you're going to eat instead of just being like just resigning yourself to being like this is going to suck. Like, for example, there's a chain that is everywhere in New York and in many other big cities called Pret-a-Manger. I love that place. Yeah. So it's the definition of just a lunch place. I guess their their sort of innovation is that all the food is just in these containers. You don't have to get anybody to ladle your soup or make your sandwich. You just grab and go. Yeah, that's what the name means. Ready to eat. Oh, there you go. Some fancy French. But, like, you can definitely have, like, the sad shitty desk lunch if you go there you can get the sandwich that's just a sponge full of mayo you can get the soup that is just the you know the the like sadly ladled out into a cardboard container that leaks by the time you get to your desk yeah but if you spend your time and you choose wisely you can have things like a 600 calorie pork burrito in its own wrapper where you peel off the layers as you continue to eat it so that you don't make any mess on your desk. This is magical. Yeah. I am terrible at, at work lunch in general. I mean, and you know, you and I, we work in an office and we sit next to each other. And I don't know how closely you pay attention to my coming and going, but very, very frequently I completely forget to eat lunch until like 4 p.m. Truly, yeah. And then I am in this weird empty space where I don't know if I should eat a real lunch or if I should wait until dinner or if I should just what I usually wind up doing scrounge really tragic snacks from our snack table but you you have the the lunch thing down like what what are your what are your rules like how how can we all learn from you and know how to make lunch work Helen I thought you'd never ask about this (laughs) it's not like you set me up for it (laughs) (laughs) well okay here here are my strats I, I I have the two most you know, and, and I'm not saying this like ironically or anything, but if I have to have one of these lunches, I go to either Pret or a place called Hale and Hardy. It's the sort of soupier version of Pret where you get to, you know, you have to ask them for the soup. And I was trying to think, okay, if you're going to have this, maybe something healthy, you'll feel good about it. 
you know? Okay. And then you think, what's the predominant flavor going to be? And is I want that to be something that I like. And then I think if you can get those two things in line, you can usually find something you like. Like it's healthy and you don't hate it. And you don't hate it. These are good life rules. I think these is kind of apply to everything. The, yeah. It never occurred to me to actually bring that to play when it comes to lunch. Well, but, you know, if you go to a pizzeria and you want a slice, you, you don't necessarily want that. You just want like the... the you know the gross thing that tastes delicious i always want the gross thing that tastes delicious this might be my lunch problem but maybe you're not going to find that at a place like hale and hardy or pret-a-manger so you're externally imposing limitations on your selection well i think that's the, the way to get the most out of it and to not make it just this this terrible place is to figure out how you can make it work for you the thing that makes me particularly sad about the sadness of weekday lunches is that historically i feel like lunch has been a much more important meal and now with our fast-paced glamorous city lives the big meal of the day is dinner and so you know you eat your breakfast while you're rushing out the door and you eat your lunch while you're sitting in front of your computer and everything winds up focusing on, on dinner and by the time that happens you're exhausted from your day and you basically just want to go to sleep so we have created zero opportunities for meaningful meals. And I don't even mean that in the high-minded way of like, let's come together at the table and like love one let's another. Let's break bread. No. Put I, away your phone and I, talk about the day. Which like, screw that. But like, no, I mean, I mean, you know, time was, according to movies and television, that people would take a full hour for lunch and they'd go to a restaurant. And you see vestiges of this still when you go into a lot of restaurants in big cities, they'll have lunch specials or quick lunch specials that they promise they can serve you within 45 minutes. And sometimes I'll see that on the menu and I'll think, my God, 45 minutes is forever for lunch. But if you have an actual lunch hour, you can go to a restaurant, sit down, have you know this set three-course menu with one of your coworkers and Live like a human being. It's the best. You know what, though? It feels so transgressive to me to spend anything longer than like an hour at lunch. And I don't know if you've had this experience before where you're having lunch with someone. And you're like, cool, we're having lunch. We're going to be in and out an hour, eh, 70 minutes, you know. And then they're like, no, let's let's get another. Let's stay. Let's get another thing. And then you're, you're crossing into that like two hour Two and a half hour. Yeah. It feels like you've just like killed someone or something. Oh, it's like, it is. It's totally like murdering someone because, some, I mean, if you meet for lunch at one o'clock and you have a th two and a half hour lunch, you're not out of there until 3.30 and then you're not back at your desk until four and then the day is basically over. And what have you done with your life? You feel like you've done this incredibly, you've done this naughty thing. It's so transgressive. You're, yeah. It's where are we going to hide the body? And then, and then where like, are we, we going to cover up the footprints? Oh my God. It's murdering people by eating long lunches it's true though it's 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 so weird and then it throws off your whole day but like but but time was that lunch lunch used to mean something greg yeah lunch used to be a meal not a refueling stop and then some cultures lunch was like the last thing you would do of the day because you'd be drunk and then you just go home i like those cultures I would like to live in Let's those bring cultures. That back. Let's bring it back. Let's bring back the five martini lunch, the siesta, and then, I don't know, getting paid a lot of money for doing very little work. Maybe that could be like some corporate option at a really cool startup or something. Be like, you can work nine to five and take a half hour lunch break, or you can work from nine to 12.30 and then have like your wasted lunch and do whatever you want, just not come back. 
as long as you do the same amount of work. So don't screw around on the internet in the first three hours of your work. We don't care what the rest of you do. That's a really good policy. I mean, you know, as long as you get it done, just go have your billion cocktail lunch. and Just be Don Draper about it. Well, he didn't really get a lot of work done. <laughs> he got a lot of work done in the middle of the night by riding on the back of a cocktail napkin. While, while sleeping there was a with a stewardess. Yeah, yeah. Next to him. But maybe that's not the best model for us to follow in terms of either food or employment. So, Helen, there's something that uh, I wanted to talk with you about. The food courts are really popular in Manhattan right now. They have them everywhere. They're really they're they're great for a lot of reasons, because chefs and restaurateurs can expand without having to sign a lease on a whole thing. So there's an economic reason. Diners seem to love them because they get all these options. You know, you or your boyfriend or girlfriend, husband, wife. You guys don't have to eat the same thing from the same place. And I'm down with all that, but there's still something that in the core of them that I, I really am always disappointed by, and I figured out exactly what it is. What is it? I don't know if you have if you saw this commercial, if you remember this commercial. There's a commercial in the 80s or early 90s for um, string cheese, mozzarella cheese. Okay. And this is the commercial. Is that it's a bunch of kids, like teenagers, they go into like, Tony's Pizzeria. And this one kind of smart-ass kid goes, hey, Tony, give me a pizza. And he goes, coming right up. And he's like, eh, but hold the uh, hold the crust. Whoa. And Tony's like, hold the crust? And he's like, eh, uh, hold the sauce. And he's like, hold the crust, hold the sauce. And he's like, eh, and hold the pepperoni. And he's like, well, what do you want here? And then he pulls out, like, the string cheese. And then he goes, Oh, that's what you want. Okay, so. How does this relate to food courts? I feel that way that the food courts are the string cheese, but everything else that I love about dining has been stripped away. And the string cheese is just that you can get food. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. But the service experience and sitting down in a nice place and having a relaxing, all you get is that one thing. And then the rest of it is just stripped away. It's not important. Yeah, man, that is very insightful. And I'm really appreciative that you called these food courts because a lot of people, largely the people who are involved in their creation and promotion, want us to call them food halls. Or food markets. Or food markets. And I think it's because the food court as a concept has become so attached to malls. And that's, I don't know, down market or not cool or whatever it is. But they are effectively food courts. And if you think about what food courts are supposed to be or do... They're supposed to just give you food as efficiently as possible so that you can refuel to go on with the rest of your day. Keep spending. And and yeah, I think I think what winds up happening is exactly what you've described. These they tend to be outposts of places that already exist and they're slightly stripped down versions of them. Like, you know, you might have some cool French restaurant that has a location in the West Village and it has a full menu and it does all sorts of stuff and then maybe just the sandwich component of their menu will pop up in one of these food halls somewhere. And yeah, there's not the decor, there's not the silverware, there's not the service, there's, it's just the food. It's, you know what it is, it's like airport dining. It is like airport dining. It's like airport dining without the airports. Yeah, but airport dining, you're like, well, at least I'm at, here I am at Tortas Frontera. It's the best food I'm ever going to get into an airport. That's awesome. But if it's just in a food ball, <laughs> food court, you know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes efficiency is important, though. You know, sometimes you're in a scenario like if you need to pick lunch for 
a speedy return to your desk and you're like, hey, listen, I would love to have this leisurely experience at an adorable little brasserie in the village, but I can't because I'm in Midtown and I only have 20 minutes. And so I'm just going to fake it in my mind and get your beautiful sandwich and sit here and scarf it down at a high ball, like a, you know, bar height communal table. And the food is the most important part of the food hall, the food court, whatever you want to call it. Well, it's all there is, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you've, you've highlighted a really interesting thing, which is that when you view the food in a context devoid of all of the other elements that are in a restaurant, it really highlights how much all those other elements matter. You know, I'm, I, I remember going to one of the food halls here in New York a, a few months ago, and I got a bowl of ramen from a very famous ramen purveyor and if you want to go to his restaurant you usually have to wait in really long lines and he has this location in a food hall where you can you know be in and out in four minutes because you place your order at the counter and they ring you up and it's like chipotle style you know you just like hand over your credit card and then they give you a to-go bag full of your ramen and it was so deeply disappointing it was it was fine but but this guy has built his whole reputation on his ramen being significantly better than fine And a few weeks later, I was at his actual ramen restaurant, and I ordered the same ramen. And I tried really, really hard to kind of isolate the flavor of the ramen and and just think about how it tasted. And it was, in fact, exactly the same. It was the same food. But it was so much more enjoyable in the space of the restaurant. Like the noise and the seats and the people and the whole rigmarole of waiting in line. The atmosphere, you're more relaxed. You could take, you could enjoy it more. Yeah, and I also felt like my money, like the price of this of this bowl of ramen, was buying more. Yes, uh, I feel the exact same way. So there's there's a a very popular food court in Manhattan right now called Urban Space Vanderbilt, and it has an outpost of Roberta's Pizza. Roberta's is like you know the ultimate. It's the apex predator Brooklyn restaurant. Totally. And the pizzas are fantastic. They serve the same pizzas at this food court. And I think they're a little bit smaller and they're like maybe a dollar or two cheaper. And then you get them. And then you have to like jockey for a table. It's super hard to find a seat. It's super crowded. You might have to stand and eat it. But just for like a dollar or two more in Brooklyn, you get to sit down and somebody will bring that pizza to you. Yeah. So right now in the Eater Upsell Studios, we are joined by Gabriel Stolman, a restaurateur based out of New York City who has, I can't even count the number of restaurants you have in the West Village and Chelsea in that area, but they are these great small neighborhood restaurants. You, They're the places you kind of wish you had in your neighborhood wherever you live. So welcome to the uh, welcome to the show here, Gabe. Thank you for having me, and that's a very kind thing to say. Do you do you know how many restaurants you have? <laughs> I do know how many restaurants I have, and fortunately for Dr. Seuss books, I'm learning how to count with my son. <laughs> and if this was a Dr. Seuss character uh, in Fox with Socks, you could count them on one hand how many restaurants I have, but you'd have to have six fingers. Awesome. <laughs> oh. um, <clears throat> plot twist. So it yes. holds at six right now. <laughs> we have six. And they're all a little bit different from each other. They're all very different from each other, actually. Like They are. I think if you visited a number of them, you would not necessarily know that they were all run by the same restaurant group, except for a couple of sort of threads. Well, that I run think like them. maybe cuisine-wise, I would agree with that statement. But the, the reason why I wanted to have you in the studio today, Gabe, is it's, I can call you Gabe, right? Of We've course brought you yeah, here that's, for that's, a reason. Yeah. Can I call you Greg? Yeah. Yeah. That's, no, that's, that's what most people call. I mean, uh, instead of Gregory, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, every time I go to one of your restaurants, I'd say the predominant theme is just a certain sense of hospitality. And I feel like in the last few years, you've been kind of opening up and chatting a little bit about your philosophy at things like the Welcome Conference and, uh, you know, elsewhere. And I just think it's really interesting that, you know, for a long time, people have been talking about the operations of the kitchen and how you run a kitchen, you know, how you cook and things like that. And now for the first time, there are people like you and the 11 Madison Park crew and everybody related to that Welcome Conference. And you guys are trying to establish kind of what I see is like, the new rules of like hospitality and just to get people talking. Um, and so that thing, I always know when I'm in one of your restaurants because of the way that you're treated as a guest. I'll say that. And I think it's something that's like a little bit just the way that people talk to you, but it, those little things make all the difference. Anyway, just wanted to tell you that that's something I really dig about your restaurants, I guess. We just <laughs> brought you. you here to compliment you. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are very kind. Uh, I, I would definitely say that's what we hope is the common thread that people feel. Uh, because as you mentioned, Helen, all of the cuisines are different. Um, and as, as you're mentioning, Greg, if people do feel what you've experienced, that's certainly a goal, is I hope that uh, the feeling of warmth and hospitality that somebody might have received at Joseph Leonard, I hope that they feel the same thing when they walk into Perla or when they walk into Fedora. So is this, um, I mean, at this point, I would imagine this is a very intentional philosophy of hospitality. But is that something that you have carried with you through the entirety of your career? I think so. Uh, you know, I think back to my first two restaurants that I parted ways with. Um, really, uh, it's it's not that it's a intentional game plan to have there be a common thread as much as it's just a philosophy or an ethos that this is what I think is a good way to take care of people. And I think that if we take care of people this way, they feel the kind of care that resonates and the kind of attention that makes you feel relaxed and comfortable and appreciated. And I think that if we deliver those kind of feelings to people, they want to come back for it. And so, yeah, we should do that no matter what we do. And if, you know, we were to open a magazine kiosk or if we were to open a dog grooming business or if we were to open a bicycle shop, if you treat people a certain way, uh, I think that should always be a core philosophy. That's cool. So growing up, were you somebody that loved restaurants? Did you like go out to eat? Were you fascinated by that? Or is that something that kind of came later in life? It definitely came later in life by, you know, default of the way I grew up. Uh, I grew up in a very strict kosher home. So, so did I. <laughs> so, I don't know that about you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so eating out was something we never did. Um, I, I grew up, I was not allowed to leave the house when the sun went down at Friday night until the sun set on Saturday night. Um, we had six sets of dishes in my house you know we had meat we had dairy and we had china for shabbat and then we had meat and dairy for passover and china for shabbat on passover just that one day a year set of china shabbat Passover. like so no i i definitely found it later in life um growing up i we always entertained a lot and food is a huge part 
of my memories. And I think food is, is, is extremely culturally important to Jews. And I come from a split background of, of uh, Jewish heritage. My mother's from Morocco, which makes her Sephardic. And my father's from Baltimore by way of Russian descent, being Ashkenaz. And so I grew up with, you know, this diverse background of, you know, couscous and tagine and bagels and lox and kugel, you know, and how did those two things intermingle on the plate was something that was always uh, exciting to be around. Um, and I didn't really start eating in restaurants until I left the house. So when do you have like a moment when you kind of realized that restaurants were a thing for you that like, you know, you stepped in as a diner and you're like, wait a minute, I want to be on the other side of this transaction. Um, I don't know that it was as, as much like a, a day as much as um, something that, that, that evolved. So I, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and like a lot, a lot, millions of kids before me and millions of kids after me, I was in a situation where I had to pay for my own school. Um, I, I grew up in a home of both my parents worked for the state. My father was a public defender and my, in, in Washington, D.C., and my mother was a public school teacher. So both of my parents, you know, they saved a certain amount of money for myself and a certain amount of money for my brother and a certain amount of money for my sister. And they said, great, you know, we've got $16,000 for your college education. Now, had I chosen to go to UVA, Virginia Tech, James Madison, all these great universities in Virginia, that would have been enough for all four years because in-state tuition at UVA was like $4,000 a year, right? Um, but I really did not want to go to a state school because I went to a really large high school and like everybody at my high school went to one of those three universities and I wanted to go somewhere I didn't know anybody and I chose to go to Wisconsin and what that meant was uh, the first year cost $25,000 so I used the whole 16 grand and then I had to take out like another $9,000 loan just to pay for the freshman year and what ended up happening was I made a decision that was influenced by somebody I met my sophomore year, you know, so freshman year I lived in the dorms and I made a bunch of friends. And then sophomore year we got a house and myself and all my friends lived in this house and they all went to school and I deferred my enrollment. And essentially I dropped out and I got a job as a line cook working in a restaurant. And the whole reason that I took a year off was if you live and work without going to school for 365 days, you can establish residency. And then I became in-state in Wisconsin. And I became a Wisconsin resident by taking a year off. And then when I re-enrolled, I was now able to go back to Wisconsin. All of my friends were juniors. I was now a sophomore, but we were still living together. And now school cost me 3500 a year instead of 25000 That's quite the plan there. That's a very smart strategy. It was influenced by an upperclassman. When I was a freshman, I met a guy who was a senior. And he, I, I have to give all the credit to Ark Bombstick, who was the one who said that he had done it. And he advised, he advised that to me if I was living on student loans for that freshman year, which I was. He was like, look, you keep doing this, you're going to graduate what? 
you, you, we can do the math, uh, 25 for the next three years plus nine on the first year, I would have graduated $85,000 of student loans like most kids do. Yeah. And he said, you do it this way, you can perhaps graduate with no student loans. And so what ended up happening was my first job was, you know, I'm 18. I, I was a line cook. Um, and then as a line cook, I saw waiters working less hours and making more money. So I asked the owner of the place that I worked at if I could be a waiter. And he said, you can be a busboy to start. And so I was a busboy and then I became a waiter. And then as a waiter in a college town, which Madison is, you see bartenders making more money, but also having cachet. Right, uh-huh. There is a cachet to being a bartender in college, which is you can get your friends and your roommates in and you can, you know, it's better for girls. And girls like, love bartenders. Yeah, bartenders I mean, have a lot of status in certain circles. You know? Definitely in college. Oh, for sure. They have plenty of status in college. I don't know about all circles, but they have status in college, right? Yeah, because alcohol is still super fetishized. Exactly. Like, yeah. And so I fought my way until I finally got a bartending job. And so I would say the moment became once I had been a bartender, you know, it probably took me about a year to get my first bartending job and working all these different positions. But I ended up working for a husband and wife, uh, Craig and Shannon Spaulding. And they owned a place, a bar, uh, like a wine bar, restaurant-ish that was uh, just off campus called Cafe Momar. And the inspiration behind the name of one of our restaurants. And I started working for them and they had two kids. One kid was four and one kid was two. And I ended up bartending there for the subsequent four years. And by the time I graduated from Wisconsin and left, you know, their kids were now six and eight. And what I watched was a lifestyle that the two of them had that was very different from the lifestyle that I remember growing up in. I grew up, you know, with two parents that worked full time. And I saw every day, you know, the father would come to the bar with his son, set his son up on top of the bar while he did inventory. The mother would come to would would come in with the daughter and put her in the kitchen while she made dough. And I saw this whole family it was like the husband and wife are working together. My parents didn't work together. You know, the kids are there. And every day they would go home. They would all have dinner. Presu- presumably they would all have dinner together. And then at like 11 or midnight, the 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 husband the the father my own my boss would come back to the bar at like midnight and the place would be packed and it because it was just off campus it wasn't a college bar it was more like the professor and local spot That's so the crowd it, you want. It, it was an older crowd and it was full of regulars and you know he would come back in and he would he, he was like the man you know, he'd walk through, he would just give me instruction. Hey, Gabe, get Yuma a Guinness on me. Get this guy a Jameson on me. Get that person a glass of wine on me. I'm doing exactly what you told me not to do. I'm trying to I'll, I'll stay focused, <laughs> right? And he would say to do all these things. And, you know, he would come in, he'd basically have a beer with somebody, shake 15 hands, high five a few people, give a bunch of hugs, and an exit. And it was like great energy came in and left every night and I was like man that guy's got the life that's cool I want to do that for a living 
and that was that was kind of it, you know. But I mean, there's so much more that was connected. Restaurants changed my whole world, which was it brought community to me in so many layers. You know, I, I went away from all my high school friends and I went away from my family. And what I found in a restaurant were uh, three communities. I became very close friends with everybody I worked with, you know, and my fellow bartenders and waiters became my brothers and sisters. And I had a restaurant family now, and that was really cool. We bonded really tight. Then I also, for the first time, experienced what the extended restaurant community is, which is people that worked at other restaurants would come in to my place and I would serve them and then they would tell me hey when you have a day off come to my restaurant you know and it would be a chef of a local restaurant oh and then I would sit there because I'd served John 10 times I'd finally I yeah John I gotta make it to your restaurant and I'd go and then John was so happy to share new foods with me and you know it it, it opened up all of these restaurants and it opened up something that I think is really amazing about a lot of people in the restaurant industry is they tend to be a well-traveled bunch. And maybe that's just because of the type of person that restaurants attract, but or, or maybe it's the nature of what restaurant day-to-day life can be. You know, you, you can sit there and be a bartender, you can make a bunch of money, and then you can take two weeks off and come back and your job is still there. People do that, you know. So like everyone I was around, oh, you haven't been to Paris? You got to go to Paris. It's like, all right, cool. Let me just work seven shifts in a row. <laughs> yeah, that's. And I'll go buy a ticket to Paris. It's like, yeah, you want to do something, just work more. Whereas yeah. most jobs, it doesn't work that way. Well, salary kind of yeah. non tip based, non yeah. hourly. Just stuff. work more and then you get paid. I'll have a big fight with your boss. Feel yeah. sad for a year. Maybe get a 3% raise. <laughs> Not that that's reflective of any of our personal Anyways, I rambled. No, no. no. So, how'd you, so, how'd you make it out to New York? What was the, what was the thing? Um, I don't. I, I get asked that question a decent amount, why New York? And my, I've tried to figure out myself why New York. And I only have a hypothesis. And I think that there's something that's in the DNA of people that you don't control, that draws or attracts you to different types of places. For instance, uh, if you were to ask my wife, where do you want to go on vacation? she would say, a remote beach. If you were to ask my father where he wants to go on vacation, he would say, in the mountains to a secluded log cabin. If you were to ask me where I want to go on vacation, I'd say, Tokyo, Paris, London. I don't know why. I just, that's, like, that is my flame that pulls me. And it's the same reason I could have chosen any number of universities. I picked one with 50,000 undergraduates. Like, that's a big fucking school, right? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of smaller schools. So I don't know why. But these are the things that drew me to Wisconsin. I wanted to be in a big school. I don't know why, I just did. Uh, I chose to, instead of have one roommate, we got a house with 10 roommates, you know? And so if... You have that, and I think it is genetic, actually. Um, And you live in the United States, right? And you say, all right, great. I'm going to now live in a city, and I'm going to live in a city in the United States. To me, there's only one city that is number one 
in this country. And I don't care how many people I upset with this statement. It's New York. You can only have a conversation about what's number two. You know, it's kind of like Usain Bolt running the Olympics. Okay, he is going to win when all of the runners line up. The question is not about who's going to win. It's about who's going to get the silver. Uh, yeah, Usain Bolt will get the gold. Who's going to get the silver? Let's have that debate. It could be that guy. It could be that guy. It could be that guy. We can talk all day. Is it San Fran? Is it LA? Is it Chicago? Is it Miami? What's number two? That's a debate, There's and a lot I of won't amazing even answer places. That. Yeah, but it's not the, Miami. We're we're <laughs> we're, not we're, Miami. we're only debating number two, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not a question about number one. And anybody who wants to sit there and be like, "Oh, that's not true," like uh, you're just literally being naive. Isn't it? New York is the center of everything. You know, I love hip hop. New York, right? <laughs> I I like TV and movies. New York, you know, I like fashion. New York. (laughs) I like history. I was a history major. I'm sorry. How did our country, you know, our society grow and develop? On the East Coast, and then we moved West. We didn't start on the West Coast and move East, right? There's just longer history here. New York is the shit. I mean, that's just kind of I mean, look, there's a lot of cities that are the shit. But where did I want to go? more of shit than more of the shit. And when you think about restaurants, for me... Uh, which I was thinking about, I wanted to be in a place that I would be surrounded by talent. I wanted to be in an environment that had the best. And I think that all of the other cities in this country have amazing chefs and amazing restaurants. New York just has the most of them, right? You know, if, if Chicago has 10 great restaurants, New York has 100, right? And, and that's just the reality. So there's more influence here. So you work for some pretty big players, if I have my biography correct in my mind. Who is, like, did you work for Keith McNally? Do I, have that I did not. You did not. Oh. I, I've admired Dang. Keith McNally. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I actually haven't worked for that many people because I made a ambitious leap. I opened the Little Owl when I was 25, which was a great. So I actually didn't work for that many people here. I wow. only lived in New York for two years before opening my first restaurant. Wow. Uh, you worked for Jimmy Bradley, though, right? I, and Danny Abrams before the split. So, yes, I worked uh, at a restaurant that only survived for one year. Uh, Pache is what it was called. Sweet, sweet Pache. And <laughs> sweet, sweet Pache. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sweetness. Um, yep. I, uh, I opened Pache and I closed Pache. <laughs> <laughs> along with a handful of other people that and and you know one of them was my old business partner Joey Campanero who we met by opening and closing Pache and then we were both unemployed and Joe's looking around thinking oh, I could go be a chef somewhere and I was looking around I could go be a bartender somewhere and we looked at each other and said or we could try to open our own restaurant that became the little owl. Some of the other people that I met at Pache work with me today. You know, Jim McDuffie, uh, who was the opening executive chef of Joseph Leonard and is now, you know, a managing partner across all of our restaurants, was a sous chef at Pache. Our assistant general manager at Jeffrey's Grocery was a glassware polisher at Pache. You know, um, so I made some really good friends there. And so- then I also worked for Marco Canora and Paul Greco before they split. Hmm, interesting. Was it a Are you hard? like a curse? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I must be because then I split with Joey. Um, splits are kind of par for the course, right? Like that's what happens with partnerships. I, I can only think of two that are 
bucking the trend. I would say it's more normal that people split. Yeah. Um, Batali and Bastianic, obviously the longevity yeah. of, of them not splitting. They're tight. Is, is the, the it's best, remarkable. Is the best example of a partnership long lasting. And it's really impressive. I admire them for it. And uh, Gadara and whom? Yeah. Are murdering it as a, as a team. Um, and I believe that they will stand the test of time. They have a profound amount of respect and admiration for one another. That's like a, a relationship, you know, like a romantic relationship. Right, I mean, yes. you can have a really good relationship mm-hmm. that was an important part of your life that doesn't end up being the person you marry and spend mm-hmm. the rest of your life with. So I was having a conversation with somebody else on Team Eater recently about like the early days of the Little Owl. There was just like no hotter restaurant in a specific way of like people wanted to go on dates with the little owl and it was just impossible to call that line and it get was a the hottest restaurant and it's a tiny tiny restaurant so it, you were there you were you were at the gate i was i think that restaurant also like arguably you could credit with launching the entire meatball trend I would, I would, fair I enough. mean, you know, meatballs obviously predate yeah. the little owl, but like yeah. a couple but fair of years. Enough. Like but serving it in a nice restaurant. But the idea of like, no man, I'm an, I want meatballs. Like, like Slider. lending. Meatball sliders. Well, sliders, but the, the, I think the sliders sort of open the gate for meatballs in general. Like I think this whole universe that we're in where like you could like order the meatballs and it's okay and it's cool. That all came out of little owl. I mean, I, I would actually agree with Greg that it was more, I think, they, at the Little Owl, they took sliders to stratospheric levels. But, you know, I think about, because before Little Owl opened, well, you know, we talked about the, the two jobs that I had, uh, one of them being Hearth, you know, and Marco made, like, Marco had been making gourmet meatballs for years at, well, at Hearth, but even before that at Kraft, his big like it's like the size of a softball veal and ricotta meatball you know that he's pretty well known for uh the franks they're older than oh, yeah. the little owl well, I mean, and I'm they, they, they did a lot of meatballs around but i think that like maybe it was the the hybrid i think the, the, slider, the slider the slider happen yeah the slider huge dish you know i think um a large part of the reason for the little owls like stratospheric success was uh you know it's it's two-part one, I mean, I'd like to believe that at the time we were doing something of quality, sure. And um, but the other part that I think is completely out of our control and was just good fortune was you, you can't control, but we were, I think, the right restaurant at the right time. And what I mean by the right restaurant at the right time, if you go back in history and you look at... Uh, I will tell you, all of the restaurants that opened within six months of the Little Owl's opening was Morimoto, Budokan, Del Posto, a location of Tao. You know, all of these restaurants were 10, 15, $20 million build-outs, 300 seats, huge names behind them. They were mega restaurants, star power theatrics. And along came to nobodies. I mean, the reality is, is uh, eight months before the Little Owls review, Joey Campanero got reviewed by Frank Bruni at Pache. Got a goose egg. Frank Bruni gave Pache and Joey the fucking donut. And 
then eight months later gave two glowing stars to the little owl. So same, I'm not like, we'll just be real. <laughs> it's not like Joey became a different chef in eight months. The whole setting changed. I think that's a huge argument for the fact that it's more than just the chef. You know, it's everything. It's context and it's what the chef is cooking yeah. and how you're doing it in the room and the, the music. And I'm going to tell you that, look, I, the, the, the chicken that was being made at the Little Owl was the same prep as the chicken that was being made at Pache. And it wasn't loved at Pache. But I like I know because I was a bartender and I had to learn my menu descriptions at Pache. Like it was butchered the same way with the hairline bone and it was seared with the skin on and crispy and it was like the same preparation it was you know the accoutrements changed from pache to little owl but the core of that dish how you butcher the bird and how you cooked it was the same and you know i don't i think that pache was a lot better than a zero star restaurant i do um but it's it it what the little owl became was here's a 30 seat 10 table restaurant with some 25 year old kid uh, i had never uh, risen higher than the position of bartender in restaurants i hadn't managed shit in my life it was all i uh, in one day i became the general manager the beverage director the bookkeeper human resources like i had to learn how to do payroll and i had to learn how to do beverage orders you know, at least Joey had been an executive chef for like six years. <laughs> he knew the job he was doing. So did you find that stuff overwhelming or was it like, this is crazy and I love it and I'm into doing all this stuff and learning all this stuff? Both. It, <laughs> it, it, I, number one, uh, the, the beauty of youth. Uh, and like, I still think I'm young. Now a decade later, I'm 35. But at 25, I, I recall working some ridiculous shit like 60 days in a row, you know, and I could handle it. I can't, you make me work 60 days in a row those hours today, my knees will hurt more, my back will hurt more. <laughs> All of a sudden, my body's starting to, you know, catch up. And so I was loving it. I was, I mean, for me, it was also my first taste of a lot of things it was the first time in my life where i actually had some money right uh you know it's always exciting that's always it's great feeling you know i always look at life um you know i moved to new york and i had a really hard time getting a job and i had no money why do you have a hard time getting a job you think because there's this ridiculous notion that so many operators hold in this city which is they only want to hire people with new york experience and it's this this idea that's so misplaced that there's no other city in the world that is got busy restaurants with high standards and it's absurd so we actually make a very big point in our company that we give people opportunities who have never worked in new york so they don't have to lie that's great <laughs> yeah and and you know so yeah it was great you know i i i at the little owl like i was making a little bit of money for the first time uh my god our little owl was on the cover of bon appetit we were on the martha stewart show you know like People were writing my name in national publications. And so I was riding high, you know, to answer your question. I was loving it, man. It was a little bit of taste of uh, recognition and fame and, and, and a little bit of money. And at the same time, yeah, I was way in over my head. 
I had no fucking clue how to discipline somebody, you know? And at the time, you got to understand every service meeting that we had, our entire wait staff was older than me and more experienced than me. And I was just the dumbass or the crazy one or the lucky one. You know, you can pick your adjective. They probably all applied. Um, who decided to try to open a restaurant. So great. I am your boss, even though you've been waiting tables 10 years longer than me. I remember we had a, we had a bunch of pros. I had waiters that were 40, you know, and had been doing it in New York for 15 years. And here I was saying, I need you to do this. And it was like, do you even know how to do my job better than me? No, but I get to make the call. <laughs> so do it this way. So did you get good fast? <laughs> That's so hard to answer I about guess. oneself. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know if I got good fast. I'm sure if you asked Joey that question, he'd say no. Um, <laughs> and that maybe led to our ultimate split. And, you know, you ask me that question. I think that. I, I needed to learn, so I, I believe I did. So now that you run a big restaurant group with six restaurants and each one of those has a GM on the floor and someone you know making the beverage orders and, and staying in charge of a, a staff, how much of your life now is sort of teaching, you know, teaching the things that you've learned? Uh, all, all of it, literally. Um, all that is my my life um the last eight months and we've gone through uh two transitions of general managers and it's the last last year's actually been like a, a lot of change for us because the way we grew was completely internally right every time we open a new restaurant we open a new restaurant because we had an abundance of talent when we opened Joseph Leonard. I literally, everyone on staff could have been a general manager. Like every bartender, every waiter had had the chops to do that. So then when we built Jeffries, a couple of people became managers. Fedora, I took a couple of people from Joseph Leonard, they became managers. Perla, so on and so forth. And what's happened over the last year was for the first time, uh, we lost three people who had been with us since opening. Um... I'm front. I'm only talking front of the house. Obviously, what got written about in Eater was yeah, Toscano moved to Charleston, Medi moved back to Montreal, uh, the GM for the last three years of Jeffries moved to Austin, the GM of Momar moved to Germany. Like, I mean, as happens, New York ultimately does not become the long-term home for a lot of people. So, we've been going through changing. And um, for the first time, we've had to bring in some people from the outside. And what my role's been has been exactly that. So I inserted myself as the general manager at Sardine for four months while we brought in the new general manager. You know, and was like, great, I'm going to be here for a handoff and work and, and I'm going to be on the ground again. And I'm going to be teaching all of the waiters and bartenders what our culture is, what our values and beliefs are. The last four months, I've been at Perla every day, replacing that general manager, and now we have a new general manager. And it's been, you know, my, my, what I believe is my role is to set the people up on our team to be successful. 
And I think one of the best ways to set them up to be successful is to provide them with a great deal of support in the beginning and then a lot of runway after that. And it would be absurd for me to think somebody's going to be successful if I go, oh, great, you're, you've got a lot of experience, you're hired, here's two weeks of training, now here's the keys. No, to me it's, all right, we're going to, you and I are going to work together for three months every day, so 70, to, 80 hours. So to keep this quality, this certain level of you know, food service and everything across this network, as the restaurateur, and you go to your We'll go, go to one of your establishments. What's your process? You walk in the door. What are you checking? What are you looking at? Um, I, I, I try to process everything. I, I have um, a rather obsessive eye um, for little details. So I, I'm scanning the art on the wall to see if frames are dusty and haven't been dusted or if things are crooked. I'm looking at all the glass to see if there's fingerprints that need to be windexed. I'm looking and touching under the tabletops to see if there's gum that's some degenerate. What the fuck's the matter with people? Do people still do that? Fucking Christ. People do that all the I do sometimes. People do that all the fucking time. How is that a thing? I don't... Were people raised by wolves? Do wolves chew gum? No, no. (laughs) I mean, like, I I think you have to be raised in the wilderness to think... Yeah, it's just like put your food on I'm going to just... I'm going to stick... So, yeah. uh, Unfortunately... I can't believe that's Unfortunately, that's something that needs to be checked for... That's so gross. Twice a week. It's disgusting. But nonetheless, you know, I, I'm looking at all these things. Then what I'm doing is I'm looking at the way staff is dressed. And I'm seeing if I think anybody, you know, I, I've made my life difficult by not having uniforms, which I think is, I've, I've, I've spoken at length about all my philosophies, why no uniforms. So I won't get into that. But it makes my life more difficult to not have uniforms. You live in a world of gray. So if if I had a uniform and it was like, you need to wear a white shirt, a tie, and black pants, it would be really easy. Are you wearing a white shirt, black tie? No, you're not. What the fuck are you doing? Right? But instead, we have all of these shades of gray. So sometimes you got to sit there and be like, dressed a little too casually, you know? I, I, like, you're... I know you're allowed to wear whatever shoes you want, but do you have cleaner ones? Right. You know, so you gotta you gotta look for those things. You know, then the next thing I'm doing is I'm grabbing the menus. I'm looking for typos, spacing errors. Like, is there a comma where there shouldn't be a comma? Is there you know two lines of indentation when there should only be one? I think you're the only person who looks for that. I I, I appreciate that so much. Oh fuck. No, I mean all over that. It's maybe it's because I'm an editor, but. Like it drives me crazy. It knocks me out of the fantasy. Is there an ampersand when everywhere else you use the word and? Right? Or is there a comma before the ampersand? Oh, I have I've offered kills me. I've offered my services as a copy editor to restaurants. And now like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> no, that's great. Like, I'm not You're badass. gonna go you're gonna go like, find you're gonna go find oh, an error sure. at one of my restaurants. It's but like those are the things I look for. I'm not saying we are, you know, grammar editing free, but we work really hard on it. Those are things that I look for. What do you look for when you go into other people's restaurants? Can you turn it off? No. Yeah? I can't. Uh, I look for inspiration at other people's restaurants. And inspiration comes in two forms. What are you doing that I haven't thought of that I'm jealous about? (laughs) And uh, that I think you're doing amazing. And that that is inspiration. And what are you doing fucking god-awful that I hate? And I'm going to make a note of that to do the opposite. 
Do you have any recent discoveries in either of those categories that you would care to share? Um, sure. I will leave the restaurant unnamed. Protect the guilty. I, I do not understand how in this day and age, if you are a popular restaurant and there is a wait and you're unwilling to take my name and number and you tell me to just go stand outside what the fuck man <laughs> seriously like there are restaurants that still do that and i went into one i wanted to eat and they sat there and they go it's about a 45 minute wait and i was like cool uh, my name's gabe and they go no 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 just wait outside and i go what do you mean like on the curb you want me to, cause there's no room for me to have a drink in here and you don't have a table for me in here. There's no space for me to be here. Can I go somewhere, have a drink and will you call me when my seats are ready and then I'll come back? And they were like, no, we don't do that. And I was just like, well, you have a phone. So you know, you understand like mentally how the process works, right? Like... <laughs> I can't stand that shit, man. That's that's one of the things on the negative side that it just amazes me that restaurants still do. Um, on the positive side, what's something that inspired me recently? Um, so or, or ever. I, I mean, I've, I'll, I'll try. it's easier to think current. Um, all right, I'll... I, I, I'm happy to, you know, I'll, I'll hide the identity of people that I'm criticizing, but I will gladly share the identity of people that are crushing it. That's fair. Um, the Nomad. Uh, uh, about a month ago was my wife and my fifth anniversary. Congratulations. And thank you. Uh, and we decided to go to the Nomad. And I very, very consciously and intentionally made the choice to not make the reservation under my name and to not go through my friends. I, we didn't want all the bells and whistles and hoopla. Those, those, that team is on it with stuff like that. Yeah, they are. So my wife made the reservation on open table like anyone and made it under her name and they didn't catch it. Right. Oh, um, you outsmarted them. We, only for a moment. <laughs> only Let the story play out. <laughs> only for a moment we outsmarted them. Um, and so I, I actually have... Where's my bag? Here. I, I actually still have it with me, so I'll, I'll, I'll be able to show you what I'm talking about, although the listeners won't get this same effect. You will. Um, so we get to the restaurant a little bit early, and we go to the library bar for a drink, and we're in the library bar, and my wife and I have been playing this word game that all of the waiters at Perla um, started getting into, and it's become this hyper-competitive word game that everyone plays on their phones to see who can get to the highest level. And so I've started playing it with my wife at home. And so we're in the library bar, and we're having a drink before dinner. Um, like a couple hours, all to, to be completely transparent, we also booked a room to stay the night. You know, our great mm -hmm. anniversary, we're going to book a room. So we got there. Um, so in honesty, they had about two hours to prepare. We get to the hotel to check in. The room wasn't ready. We go to the library bar. 
to have a drink and then we were going to go upstairs, get ready and then come down to dinner. And all of this, we were successfully getting beyond their radar. While we're in the library bar having a drink, the manager, uh, Camille, walks by us. And she sees me and she's like, Gabe? I go, yes. What, <laughs> what are you doing here? I was like, look, it's our anniversary. We decided we love this restaurant. We wanted to come. Why didn't you tell us? We wanted to just be treated normally. And we just, like, I love this restaurant. I love you guys. And this is where we want to be. And I just... I didn't want, like, I didn't want to text Will or anybody. Just, we're here. We're really happy to be here. And so my wife and I have our phones out, and she's like, what are you guys doing? So we're playing this game. It's called Word Brain. You can just look at the screen and get the general idea of it. It's like Foggle. Yeah, you, you know, it tells you, okay, great, there's seven empty squares, so I need to find a word with seven letters, right? And then you find your word. Right, and and that's what it, she she's looking. What it, and and so we oh we're playing this game Word Brain, and she's like oh let me see and she looks at it. She'd never heard of it. Fast forward, two hours later, we check in. We go up to our room. We come in for dinner, and on on the table, what they've done uh, the way that they always set the table there is the napkin covers your menu, right, and so we sit down. And we take the napkin off, and what they'd done is they downloaded the game, learned how to play it, and then in two hours, customized our menu. Oh, my God. And they made it like this, and yes, within it is a message that says, here is two many more. Whoa. Wow. This is insane. This I mean, is with only two hours heads up. But this is also classic, those guys. Yes. Yeah. Dream weaving. Dream weaving. I mean, they have they have a, a people on staff whose job title is dream weaver. That's job pretty, is that's a do, pretty this is sweet so looking cool, menu, though. though and then it's just their regular menu, and we ordered a la carte, and but they, they went out of their way. That's amazing. That's, it's called anniversary brain. Yeah. Like word brain. This is great. That's uh, that's hospitality Olympics right there. That's nomad. So you're gonna start doing this at Fedora, right? Na- Forever, na- natural, <laughs> literally na- everyone. Naturally, and so there's <laughs> a story is, of being inspired. And look, I mean, that's only a month ago. They You'll just, have that forever, and yeah. exactly, just crushing it up in that restaurant. So here's what I'm interested in, and, and the way that you've grown your thanks restaurant for, group. Thanks for entertaining. Yeah, that's long story. No, that was an, an amazing, amazing story. story. Now I feel like the um, bar has been raised for for my next anniversary dinner. Fuck, man. And it was like, imagine if I had booked this through you a week ago. A week oh, yeah. ago. Oh, like, there would have would been have literally like, like a, a living unicorn walking exact, through the dining yes. room. Yes. Absolutely, there would have been. <laughs> they would have bred and they would have, they, they would have suspended my table in the <laughs> air. I would have been eating above everyone. Like, fuck. Yeah. Very impressed. Very <laughs> impressed. So your first restaurant in New York, just your first solo project, Joseph Leonard, Classic small restaurant and very interesting for how how you've arranged the space and how the space works and how you guys fit there. And then you open Jeffrey's Grocery, kind of catty corners. And I remember when you opened it, it was kind of like, so you don't, you know, if you have to wait at Joseph Leonard, there's another place across the street you can go and hang out or you can just go and eat and it can be your thing. Mm -hmm. And then you've since opened three other restaurants in that general vicinity and then one not too far away. So how do they all work together now? Are they all like, and how do customers engage with them? Are customers monogamous to one of your restaurants? Do they go to all of them? Do you send people to the other ones? 
different people, different answers. So, yeah, we have some regulars who, you know, go to Joseph Leonard all the time and they say, yeah, Pearl is not for me to this or that or too expensive, right? We have some people who are like, yeah, I don't like Fedora, it's too loud, right? Uh, we have plenty of people who go to all of them. Um, the way that we had the idea of if there's a way to Joseph Leonard, you can go hang out at Jeffries, that doesn't work out anymore now because Jeffries has its own weight. So I can't take somebody on the wait list and be like, yeah, go across the street because across the street's got its own problems. Uh, and, you know, you can't just play ping pong with somebody. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's room. And then they get to the next mater D and the mater D's like, no, there's no room here. And then so, they send you to Sardine. And yeah. Then they send and, you to exactly. <laughs> it's like paying off one credit card exactly. with another credit card. Yeah, it's just, it's, so that, that, I, that was the idea. It fortunately failed i guess because i mean the reason that that idea doesn't work is because the other restaurant's busy on its own merit um the best possible scenario yeah it it, it is it's it's a wonderful scenario um and then um i would say how do they all work as a community so i would say they work together in like, even though they're all close, there are some that are closer to another. So, for instance, uh, Fedora and Sardine share a lot of things. Um, storage, you know, uh, paper goods, you know, to-go bags, to-go boxes, uh, thermal paper for the point-of-sale system. Stuff like this, um, they'll share uh, because they're right next door to each other. Joseph Leonard and Jeffries share a lot of things because they're right across the street from each other. Um Pearl and Momar, by default, need to be self-contained because it's too long of a walk to go grab, you know, some butter. Whereas it's not too long of a walk to go next door. So um, I would say that's the way that they integrate mostly is uh, Joseph Leonard and Jeffries also share management shifts uh, in the morning. So we have found that in the evening, each restaurant needs its own dedicated manager, but for because both serve breakfast. But at breakfast, I don't need a manager at Joseph Leonard and a manager at Jeffrey's uh, Tuesday at 8 a.m. One is good. They need dedicated managers for brunch. Saturday and Sunday are behemoth services for us. So um, they share management in the front of the house, not in the back of the house. No, well, that's not true. There's a joint pastry chef. For the two restaurants uh, but savory side they're completely independent um, and at sardine and fedora they're the opposite they have completely independent front of the house management and then they share a back of the house management team well it sounds like you figured it all out in terms of how these places work fit together we we, we figure it out by failing constantly so you know you, i i am one of those people who I'm very comfortable with saying, let's try it a different way. Let's try it a different way. Let's try it a different way. And, you know, if you are willing to keep trying it different ways, then, you know, you'll keep making minor improvements. Okay, well, this is a little bit better than how we were doing it before. Let's tweak again. It's a little bit better than how we were doing that. Keep tweaking. How do you know when something's right? Um, like at what point do you stop tweaking? 
I don't know because I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I keep tweaking. Big picture and little picture? Like Yeah, for know? sure. More um, stuff. Yeah. Everything's I, changing. I keep tweaking. Um uh, I'm trying to think, is there an example of anything that I haven't literally everything's still tweaking. I love that though. Like, <laughs> there's something very zen, you know, just like everything changes. Yeah. The only constant is change. They're living organisms, you know? Yeah. They gotta breathe and grow. The thing that has been the most consistent is the menu format of Joseph Leonard. Is the same format since day one. And that's a, the oldest restaurant. But literally everything else. Like the menu layout of every other restaurant has changed like four times. You guys have a really great breakfast at Joseph Leonard, I gotta say. Thank you. It's got some surprises and uh, it's just really good. It's, it's, we, what we try to do is uh, treat it differently than brunch um, and have more cleaner options because I think diners are looking Monday through Friday for a few of those breakfast options that are on the healthier side and on Saturday and Sunday nobody wants the, we've put them on the menu and on Saturday and Sunday everybody's like nah I want the fried chicken people just want a mainline reacts or something yeah exactly yeah, yeah nobody wants like an egg white omelet nobody wants Saturday that morning. on Saturday nobody no. wants that on Saturday but do you need something to lay a solid foundation for the like pre-noon booze yeah exactly that's the exactly. whole idea of brunch um, so right now we've come to the time in the eater upsell uh, for something we call the lightning round This is nothing to get too afraid about. We're just going to ask you some questions. Super basic. We ask every chef and restaurateur this, and just first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Roll it out there. Okay. So if you were at an airport and you had some time to kill, Mm. what would you do with yourself? What's your airport vice? Hudson News. Yeah. Magazines. Which ones? Like, I'm a fucking magazine addict. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think it's a common, like... Whatever is embarrassing, and maybe I'm not embarrassed by it anymore. I don't read novels. I don't read them. Uh, it's maybe it's a product of uh, short attention span. Maybe it's a product of I don't have a lot of time to jump into a 500-page book. Um, maybe it's because I like movies. Maybe it's because I like pictures. I definitely like pictures. You know, like you ask. I I collect cookbooks. My favorite cookbooks are ones with pictures. <laughs> so I love magazines. Um, I'll obvious, I get all the food ones, Bon App, Food & Wine, Savoir. I get a lot of the um, men fashion, you know, Esquire. Oh, yeah. Esquire. Esquire's great. I love Esquire. Es- I've been subscribing to Esquire since I was a teenager. Me too. <laughs> so Esquire, GQ. Um, I don't do details. I used to. Sorry. Hudson News. Yeah. Hudson, oh, sweet, sweet Hudson News. I will destroy the magazine section. I love that. So you're on a road trip. You're by yourself. There's some music that's blasting, and you're singing along to it. Or you know, mm-hmm. what? What's the music? Most Def. Which album? Most likely Black on Both Sides. But right now, what I was listening to on the way here is uh, the New Danger. Oh, fantastic! That yes. was such a good call. I really like that answer. <laughs> um. If you walk into a bar you've never the been to before. The most beautiful oh. boogeyman. The oh. most beautiful boogeyman. Anyways. Sorry. No, no. Please <laughs> continue singing. This is the best. Um, if you walk into a bar you've never been to before, mm-hmm. completely neutral bar, mm-hmm. what's your drink order? Mm, probably it, it, would, it would be either a Manhattan or Negroni based upon season. 
And if you walk into like the perfect bar of heaven, then you know you're going to get the best cocktail you've ever had. Sazerac. There you go. I don't trust that with everyone. It's a it's a tricky drink. Mm-hmm. It's an average night at Casa Stolmen, and you are tasked with cooking something. Mm-hmm. What is it? What's the first thing that you're gonna you're gonna cook? It, average night, I'm tasked with cooking. Um, I do a, a whole whole roasted bird, you know, because I I like that the actual attention that you need to put into it is so short and then it's just hang out and wait. You know, I mean, if you have a great roasting dish and get a bunch of vegetables and put a bunch of butter under the skin and a whole bunch of seasoning and herbs, put it in the oven That's and, it. and go hang out. Pretty perfect. <laughs> All right, well, last one. If you were not running a cool restaurant group of neat, special, small West Village restaurants, what would you be doing with your life? Uh, I would probably be doing what I went to school to study. Uh, I was going to be a high school teacher, a history teacher. Uh, like I said, my mom's a teacher. Uh, aunts and uncles are teachers. I grew up in a family that worked for the government. I grew up like I'm a public school kid. Um, I love history. I was so influenced and inspired by my high school history teacher and how much they opened the world to me. Uh, I went to University of Wisconsin to be a history major, and uh, that's what I would do. I'd be a high school history teacher. That's beautiful. Well, hey, Gabe, thanks so much for coming in and chatting with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's always great to see you. You can check out any of Gabe's restaurants right here in New York City. They're all really good. Yeah. Thank you. really like all of them. You can almost go to one every day for a week. Or you could go to like three a day. Yeah. It'll just like knock them all out. (laughs) Two really hardcore days of eating. Thanks for coming by, Gabe. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. On next week's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are talking with the one and only Alton Brown. Man, he is like a legend. And, you know, he has done so many things over the years. He's funny. He's smart. He's super, like, tech savvy. Do you have a crush on him? I have an intellectual crush on him. But he also, he has some sort of magnetism. There's something about him seeing him in person that's just really cool. I have, like, a full-on romantic crush on him. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell. And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening. <laughs>